This morning we are in what is one of the most intriguing passages in the scriptures in my estimation. It also is one of the most significant portions of the Word of God. There is so much in this chapter that we would like to know, we'd like to understand, we would like to have explained to us. I get that. I get that. And so this morning I'm going to do something that I don't think I've ever done before, and that is I'm going to do this message in two parts. The first part being this morning and the second part being tonight as opposed to next week. So I'm not going to be in Ephesians this evening. I'm going to be right back here in 1 Kings chapter 13. And I know it's going to be a bit frustrating, but hang with me. And uh, this morning it's going to be a little bit more of just understanding the text. And tonight it's going to be almost all application. 45 minutes of an application from this text because it says so very, very much. I'll have some application this morning, but the, the vast majority of it will be tonight. But even with that understanding, there is much of the details that we're not going to be able to focus on this morning. But we want to get a general overview, a general picture of what is going on and uh, the general takeaways of the big issues that we're to see in this particular portion of Scripture and then tonight looking at that in greater detail and some of the smaller issues that are found in this particular portion of Scripture. We must remember that we study the Scriptures not to satisfy our idle curiosity or wow others with our ingenious interpretations. Rather, we study the Word of God to ascertain what the Lord has to say to us. And as I have mentioned many, many times from the pulpit, one approach that is very helpful and ascertaining what a text is about is to look for repeated statements or phrases in the portion of Scripture that we are in. In the passage that is before us, the emphasis is upon the Word of God. Nine times the Word of the Lord is referred to in our text. Verses 1, 2, 5, 9, 17, 18, 20, 26, and 32, all find the phrase, the word of the Lord. Now let me look at those very, very quickly with you. Verse 1, Behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord. Verse 2, And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord. Verse 5, The altar also was torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign of the man given him by the word of the Lord. Verse 9, For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord. 1 Kings 13, 17, for it was said to me by the word of the Lord. 1 Kings 13, 18, and he said to him, I am also a prophet as you are. And an angel said to me, by the word of the Lord. Verse 20, and as they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet. 1 Kings 13, 26, and when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard of it, he said, it is the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. And then verse 32. For the saying that he called out by the word of the Lord. So you get it. The word of the Lord, 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 and the word of the Lord. It's about the word of the Lord. That's the central theme of this passage. The importance of the word of the Lord. Another important element 
in understanding the interpretation of a passage is context. Is context. And if you will remember, last week we talked about seven characteristics of false worship. Seven characteristics of false worship. Today, today we see the effects of false worship. The relationship in particular of false worship and the Word of God. Those two elements come together. False worship and the Word of God. So what at first reading seems like an oddity quickly becomes one of the saddest portions of Scripture. You kind of lament the outcome and the tragedy that comes upon the man of God. Well, background. First, let's look at the elements of the story, and I'm going to approach them as scenes, as scenes that uh, hold them together and the relationship they have to the Word of God. First scene, Jeroboam was resistant to the Word of the Lord, and we find out the false worship refuses to be corrected by the Word of God. False worship refuses to be corrected by the Word of God. A prophet was sent by God to confront Jeroboam in verse 1. Behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. At God's direction, the prophet denounces the false worship, verse 2. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the throne of David, Josiah by name. And he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you and the human bones shall be burned on you. I would love to make more comments and application here, but I'm just going to tell the story in the beginning. The prophet provides proof that his future prophecy will come true. And he gave a sign the same day saying, this is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. Jeroboam immediately wants to silence the prophet, verse 4, and when the king heard the saying of the man of God, when he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar saying, seize him, and Jeroboam's hand withers, verse 4b, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar saying, seize him, and the hand which they had stretched out against him dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. Now God's word against the altar is fulfilled, verse 5. The altar was torn down and the ashes were poured out from the altar according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Jeroboam seeks the Lord's healing through the prophet's help. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. Let me just say this much at this point is that Jeroboam is not repentant. Jeroboam merely wants to be relieved of this problem that he has with his his hand. And there's a great lesson to be learned in that, and that is people who do not readily trust in the Lord often turn to the Lord in times of need, especially in times of physical need. People who never name the name of Christ, people who aren't interested in prayer, all of a sudden become interested when they have a physical malady, when when something comes into their life 
in which they want to be delivered from, there's a natural tendency to turn to God. And that's Jeroboam here. He is not repentant. He does not become a true worshiper of God. He just wants to be rid of his withered hand. And Jeroboam's hand is healed in verse 6b. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him because as it was before. The king invites the prophet to the king's house in verse 7. And the king said to the man of God, come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. But the prophet refuses the invitation in verse 8. And the man of God said to the king, if you give me half of your house, I will not go with you, and I will not drink bread or water in this place. And so the prophet refuses the invitation, says, you can't give me enough money to get me to go to your house. Second, the reason he refuses is because the prophet has been given strict orders by the Lord. Verse 9, he gives the reason. For it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, you shall not eat bread, nor drink water, nor return by the way that you came. Now, the order that the Lord is given is essential to the story, so keep that in mind. And the, follow, and the prophet follows the Lord's direction, verse 10. So he went another way, did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. Scene 2. We're introduced to an old prophet. And here the old prophet corrupts the word of God. The old prophet heard all that the young prophet had said and done, verses 11 and 12. Now an old prophet lived in Bethel, and the sons came and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told to their father the words that he had spoken to the king. And the father said to him, which way did he go? And his son showed him the way that the man of God came from Judah had gone. Now the old prophet wanted the young prophet to come to the old prophet's home, verses 13 through 15. And he said to his son, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he mounted it. And he went away after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. The young prophet refused the invitation in keeping with the word of God. Verse 16, he said, I may not return with you or go with you. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water there nor return by the way that you came. But the old prophet had lied to him, verse 18, and he said, I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel came to me and by the word of the Lord, saying, bring him back with you into your house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. Now, it's essential that we keep in mind that the old prophet had lied to the young prophet. What the prophet said was a lie. The old prophet was not mistaken. The old prophet was not misled. The old prophet lied. He lied. Third scene. The young prophet disobeys the word of the Lord. As a result, the young prophet went home with the old prophet, verse 19. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. While the old prophet's, while at the old prophet's home, the old prophet becomes a, receives a revelation from God denouncing the young prophet. And as they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who brought him back and he cried to the man of God who came out of Judah, thus says the Lord, 
because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord, have not kept the commandment that the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place which he has said to you, let no bread and drink no water, your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. Now there's so much that we'd love to know about that, don't we? We want to know about why God would use this, this prophet who had lied now to speak condemnation and reproof to the young man. Come back tonight. Come back tonight. Well, these things are going to be tonight. All right? Moving on. <clears throat> and aside, was the young man really culpable for having believed the lie? See, this lie is essential. And the, prof, the young prophet believes what the old prophet said and went back, and it's going to cost him his life. So was he really culpable? In other words, should he have known? Should he have known that the old prophet had lied to him? And the answer is yes. Key to this story, the answer is yes. Why? Well, the prophet knows what God had told him. 1 Kings 13, 18, he said, I may not return with you or go in with you, neither shall I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water there nor return by the way that you came. It couldn't be clear as to what the young prophet was to do. And he demonstrates faithfulness and understanding what he was to do by refusing the king's invitation. Even though the king was going to reward him, he wasn't going to violate the word of God. But now the old prophet comes and lies to him. But God does not contradict himself. God's word is not contradictory. Now, the young prophet didn't have these words, but he understood the significance, and we do have the words. In Galatians 1, 6 through following, it says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and the turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. If anyone, Paul says, preaches to you something that is contrary to what I have preached to you, let him be accursed. I don't care if it's an angel that appears to you. Don't accept it. It's false. Let him be accursed. We must understand that false worship is deceptive. False worship presents itself as a true worship. And the great danger is that people enter into and believe the lies. Believe the lies. There are those that claim to have a revelation or speak from God. So in our day and age, there, there are books out there of people that claim to have died and gone to heaven and are going to come back and tell you what heaven's about. Then there are books of those that have died and gone to hell and they're going to come back and tell you what hell is about. It's lies. 
It's lies. And we need to understand it as lies. And we need to stay as far away from it as possible. One of the main takeaways is that the greatest danger for the true child of God is not by those that openly oppose and reject the word of God. Jeroboam really wasn't much a threat to the young prophet. He wasn't going to be taken in by that. He wasn't going to be lured by wealth or by fame. He easily resisted that temptation and demonstrated his mettle, by the way, of being willing to go and declare to a king that this worship is false, knowing that king is going to be angered at him. And yes, the king even wants to seize him and kill him, but God is going to protect him. No, he's not, he's not taken in by that. But what he is taken in by is the old prophet. We need to be aware that the greatest danger to us as the people of God are people who claim to be people of God who speak things that are contrary to the word of God. He was duped by this young, duped by the old prophet. But the young man should have known better at the very least, he should have sought the Lord's direction. He should have prayed. He, he should have asked God what to do if he really was uncertain. The scriptures tell us that we're to search the scriptures to see if the things that are so that we, are, that we hear. Acts 17, 11 says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things are so. Brothers and sisters, it is incumbent upon us when we hear people speak the word of God and declare that they are speaking for God to examine the scripture and say, is that indeed what the word of God says? We are culpable. We are responsible for what we believe. And here's a very hard lesson to learn. And that is that there are those who claim to speak for God that lie. False doctrine is not always the, the product of ignorance or misunderstanding. Sometimes it's downright lies. Oftentimes I hear things preached or said, and I just wonder how people can say and believe such things. Well, sometimes it's just lies. Sometimes it's just lies. But, you know, in our naivety and, and in our kindness, we sometimes don't want to, to think that, but he lied. He lied. Scene three, the young prophet dies and the word of God is fulfilled. The young prophet leaves to return home. Verse, uh, to the uh, young prophet leaves to return to the home of, uh, uh, excuse me, to his own home. First Kings 13, 23. And after he'd eaten bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. He is met by a lion on the way and is killed. Verse 24. And as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And the body was thrown in the road, and the donkey stood beside it. The lion also stood before the body. We'll talk about that tonight. See, news reaches the old prophet concerning the young man's death. 
And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road and the lion standing on the body. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. The old prophet sees the young man's death as a fulfillment of God's word. Verse 26. And when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard of it, he said, It is the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has given him to the lion, which he has torn him and killed him, according to the word that the Lord spoke to him. The old prophet identifies with the young prophet and becomes associated with the old prophet. Verse 27 through 31. And he said to his son, saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it and he went and touched he went and found the body thrown in the road and the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. The lion had not eaten the body or torn the donkey. And the prophet took up the body of the man and laid it on the donkey and brought it back to the city to mourn and to bury him. And he laid the body in his own grave and they mourned over him saying, Alas, my brother. And after he had hurried him, he said to, buried him, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave in which a man's God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. Again, the application tonight. Next, the old prophet knows by all that has taken place that the words of the young prophet will come to pass. Verse 32. For the saying that he called out by the word of the Lord against the altar to Bethel and against all the houses of the high places are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. The outcome. After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests to the high places again from among all the people, any who would be ordained to be priests of the high places. And this thing became a sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and destroy it from the face of the earth. All right, that's the story. Now I'm going to slow down and look at some important interpretive keys to this passage so that we can make some right applications eventually. But we first need to understand exactly what is going on here. First, we need to understand the distinction between the two prophets. What is really important in the scriptures is always to ask yourself, what does the passage say? as opposed to what the passage does not say. So often people want to know things that it doesn't say. We need to focus always on what it says. And it's very interesting that in these biographical sketches, there's very little said about these two prophets. We don't know their names, for example. There is so much detail that's not given that you would expect that it should raise the antennas on what it does tell us. So what does it tell us about these, these prophets? Well, first, we know where the two prophets were from. The young prophet was from Judah, the southern kingdom. Verse 13, 1. Behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. So this young prophet is from the southern kingdom. This is a kingdom at this point that is remaining faithful to God and to his word. The old prophet was from Bethel, the place where the false worship was being manifest, verse 11. Now, an old prophet lived in Bethel. He dwelt there. It was a place of his abode. 
So of all the details that are not afforded us, why does it tell us that he lived in Bethel? For that was the very center of false worship. That is where the altar that was spoken against had been erected. All of this was being done in the old prophet's presence. He was well aware of what was taking place. Second, we're to focus on how the prophets are referred to. Now, I actually have been obscuring a very important fact by referring to the young prophet as a young prophet. But I would draw your attention to how the scriptures refer to the young prophet. And that is that he is a man of God. For sake of time, I'm not going to read every verse. Well, there are 13 of them. But verse 1, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, verse 11, verse 12, verse 14, verse 21, verse 26, verse 29, and verse 31 all refer to him as a man of God. A man of God. That's not how the old prophet is referred to. He's referred to as a man of God. Thus, the emphasis is upon the young man's godliness. Godliness. One might hope that the terms prophet and man of God would be synonymous terms. But unfortunately, they're not. You would think, you would hope, you would want that every prophet would be a man of God. But sadly to say, they aren't. They aren't all godly. They are not all righteous. They are not all living as they should. What could be said about the young prophet cannot be said about the old prophet. The old prophet is just a prophet. And I would submit to you this morning that he is a wayward prophet. A wayward prophet. Meaning that this prophet has some relationship to God. He, in that sense, is a true prophet in the sense that he is a person who knows who God is and God uses, even in this passage, but he's not a godly prophet. He's a wayward prophet. True, void of true godliness. This old prophet had sold out a long time ago in tolerating this false worship that was right under his nose and not speaking out against it. It even appears that the prophet's sons were engaged in that false worship. At least they know exactly what happened that day. And they even had heard the conversation that took place between the king and the man of God. Most likely they were there. They were there participating in this false worship. For it was syncretistic. And that was its greatest danger. It had elements of true worship and elements of false worship. 
And we see the tragedy of false worship and the effects that it has on this old prophet. For you see that the old prophet had become, a, become tolerant of lies. He knew the false nature of that worship. He knew that those calves had not brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. He knew all the garbage that was being associated with that false worship, but he didn't stand up against it. He tolerated the lies. And it's hard to imagine that in some way he did not perpetuate the lies. He at least did by his silence. But the great tragedy is that not only did he tolerate the lies, but he himself becomes a liar. He is so comfortable in this ungodly worship that he enters into the practice himself. And how ungodly and how unrighteous does he become? He is willing to declare by the word of the Lord that he had received a vision that told him that the young man of God should return with him. He has no problem in representing that he's speaking for God. And that God had whispered in his ear what God wanted this young man to do. But he lied. And he knows that he lied. We must be very, 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 very careful that we understand and, and I say this heavy hearted, I, I say this heavy heartedly that you would hope that the word pastor and a man of God would go together, but they're not necessarily synonymous. People aren't always what they represent themselves to be. And preachers and teachers, unfortunately, don't always speak the truth. And this passage tells us that there's a great danger in that. There is a great danger. And I would say to you, there's a spectrum. A spectrum that we need to be aware of and to be a guard against. For there are many, many reasons why a preacher or teacher could speak things that aren't true. There's a gamut, there's a spectrum. And on the one side, some are just lousy students. Some just don't seem to have the ability to really understand the scriptures and to be able to proclaim them accurately. Some are just lousy students. Some are too busy with other things that they don't have time to really know and study the scriptures. They don't have time to prepare a text. There are some that virtually speak off the top of their head. Well, that's going to lead to a lot of untruths. Some are just too busy. 
Some are too lazy. They have the time, but just don't want to take the time. Just don't want to put in the effort, the work. And it is work. To study the whole counsel of God, to, to see how it all fits together. It takes time. It takes reading and rereading. And some just don't want to do that. Others are just sloppy. Sloppy. They take other people's word for it. I can't tell you how many, commentators, how many commentaries I find errors if you just look carefully, if you do the word studies, if, if, you, if you take time to look up what they've said because they're repeating somebody else's error. Sloppy. Some just are disinterested. They don't have a great interest in the word of God. There are other things. They're people-oriented and doing a lot of good things, but the word of God is kind of down on the list. And then unfortunately, we reach our text. And there are some that just lie. There are people that will tell you they've had visions. They will tell you that, that God has whispered certain things into their ears. And they will hide their, their lies upon other things. But they lie. The bottom line, whether the lie is intentional or unintentional, whether it is because the person is trying to do harm, or the person just is sloppy and what they say is wrong, the bottom line, the effect is the same. God's word is dishonored. And God's people are misled. So it's really, really important because what is going to mislead God's people are those that claim to speak for God who are not speaking for God. They are saying their own thoughts rather than the thoughts of the Word of God. Warning signs, flashing signs. This is huge. False worship corrupts the Word of God. Second takeaway. The old prophet, what is his motivation? Why does he lie to the man of God? What's in it for him? Look with me at 1 Kings 13, 18. And he, that's the old prophet, said to him, that's the man of God, I also am a prophet. And notice the next words, like you. Like you. There's no difference between you and me. I'm a prophet like you are. You see, and, and that is the very crux of false worship. If you remember last week, we had seven characteristics of false worship. And number three or four was that it mimics true worship. It wants to associate, it wants to pass itself off as true worship. I have yet to see a church sign that says, all welcome, we don't speak the truth here. How many have seen that sign? 
No one is going to stand up and say, we don't speak the truth here. Everyone wants to be associated with a true church. Everyone wants to present itself as those that are committed to God and his word. I am a prophet like you. And he wanted to be identified with this young man. He wanted to ride on his coattails. He wanted to have the same respect. He wanted to have the same honor. He wanted to be viewed in the same way as this young prophet was. Even to the point where he wants to be, have his bones buried with him. So that even in his death, he's associated with this young prophet. And there's many more now applications that go down that line, and I will go down that tonight. This old prophet was not like this young prophet. The young was bold. One was courageous. The one confronted the king. The old prophet didn't even protect his sons. He was not like the man of God. Association. Association. Understand that those who do not speak the truth want to be associated with those that do. Second, we're to see that God's word is fulfilled. The word of God was fulfilled with regard to the altar being broken down. Verse 5, the altar also was torn down and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. The prophecy regarding the man of God is fulfilled. Verse 26, and when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard of it, he said, it is the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. Therefore the Lord has given him to the lion which the Lord which has torn him and killed him, according to the word that the Lord had spoken to him. So God's word was fulfilled to the young prophet. And the word of God was fulfilled with regard to Jonah, uh, jo, uh, excuse me, Josiah destroying the altar, 1 Kings 13, 32. And uh, we'll look at that tonight. But here is a prophecy regarding a king who is not even yet born, and yet it's fulfilled. Again, more of that tonight. But the takeaway about all of that which I think is one of the most important lessons in this passage and that is that the fulfillment of God's word or the effectual nature of God's word is not contingent upon the righteousness of the prophet. Let me say that again. The fulfillment of God's word or the effectual nature of God's word is not contingent upon the righteousness of the prophet. 1 Kings 13, 32, for the saying that he called out, that is the man of God, by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel, against all the houses of the high places that are in the cities of Samaria, shall surely come to pass. And tonight we will see that it does. The young man's disobedience did not negate the truthfulness of his message. 
nor did it negate the effectualness of his message. Why am I saying that? Because it stands in great contrast to conventional wisdom. It goes against what you will read and understand in most books and in most commentaries. And that is that if you're going to be effectual as a preacher, you must live a godly life. <laughs> you should live a godly life as a preacher. We've been saying that, but that's not the basis of the effectualness or the power of the Word of God. It's not the godliness of the individual. It's the power of the Word of God. My Word will not return void. It doesn't say, but it will accomplish that where it was sent. It doesn't say my Word will re not return void and accomplish that which into it has been sent, if it's said by somebody who's living a godly and righteous life. Peter and John healed a man, and the people marveled. And in Acts 3.11 it says, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico, called Solomon's, called Solomon's, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our power or piety or godliness we have made this man walk? No, it's not by our righteousness. It's by the power of the word of God. The young man's death actually bore witness to the truthfulness of God's word. And did not undermine God's word. It's interesting to me how so many of the commentaries go to the last two verses when it says, then, as though, as a result, Jeroboam continues in his is uh, false worship because the young prophet had undermined the word of God through his disobedience and therefore it led Jeroboam into further disobedience. That's not what this passage teaches. That's not the point. The prophecy was that this false worship would continue on. <laughs> that there would be a Josiah that would remove it this is going all in accordance. But what I really want you to see is that there are two different responses to the young prophet's disobedience. The old prophet becomes absolutely assured of the faithfulness of God's word as he sees what God does in bringing the death of this man of God to pass. The old prophet declares and says, surely, 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 what he cried is going to come to pass. For God keeps his word. For Jeroboam, he did not see that. That's what was not communicated to him. But the issue is the effect by the grace and power of God. 
not by the sheer act itself. The act had two different responses. The act didn't govern the response. The word of God governed the response. And we're not just getting into hyperbole here or getting into the weeds of things that don't matter. For we must understand that sometimes, sometimes, ungodly churches prosper. And you can't assume that just because they prosper, that that means that God is blessing them, God is rewarding them, and we need to follow and believe and act as they, they do. For something else should strike us about this passage, and again, I'm going to deal with it tonight. I know I'm piling them up, and, and I know I'm promising a lot, but, but we will deal with these things tonight. And that is, why is the man of God struck by a lion and dies? And the old prophet lies, is culpable, is responsible to some degree for the young prophet's death and has been unfaithful to God. Why does he continue on? Why is he allowed to live? What's the lesson to be learned in that? Well, again, there are many applications. And as I said, this, said just a few moments ago, when we look at churches and wonder why are they continuing on, why are they being blessed, we would assume, wouldn't we, that if, if they're doing something that's wrong, they're immediately going to fail. And why does the little church that's preaching the word of God, why are they struggling? Wouldn't we expect that they are immediately going to be blessed and back tonight but there is a general principle that we must keep in mind first peter 4 17 says something very very significant it says for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of god and it begins with us and if it begins with us what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel God's judgment, God's discipline begins with us. God's discipline starts with his children. God is faithful in disciplining his children. It's a demonstration of his love and his care and his concern. It says it begins with us. It starts with the man of God for he is the closest but don't think that the others are not going to experience judgment. Don't think that they just continue on. That's the next chapters. That's what we see, the outcome, the fall. It takes time, but it's coming. It's coming, it's coming. But the discipline is to teach a great truth. And that is that we should all fear falling short of the glory of God, we should all be afraid of entering into false worship. Care. Care about truth. Care about truth. 
And one of the, the saddest representations of where the world is today and where the Christian church in general is today is that people have bought into the idea that you can't understand truth. You don't understand what truth is. We can't know the truth. And there are a lot of people, when it comes to doctrine, just throws up their hands and say, there are so many different beliefs out there. There are so many different practices out there. There are so many different understandings out there. Who can know? And certainly, who are we to judge? I tell you, we have the responsibility to know. And you must ascertain and you must understand because you will stand before God for what you believe and how it's practiced. And you're not going to be able to stand before God and say, well, how was I supposed to know? You're supposed to know because you're given the Word of God. You're supposed to know because you're given teachers of the Word of God, and you're responsible for the teaching you sit under. Whether it be ignorant, whether it be sloppy, whether it be lazy, whether it be godly, or whether it be lies. Who are you going to listen to? Who are you going to follow? And are you going to be like the Bereans? Are you going to search the scripture to see if these things are true? It's the difference between true and false worship. And I hope you can identify it. Come back tonight and we're going to deal with a lot of the interesting intrigue of these verses. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your grace and goodness. Help us to be people of the truth. Help us, Lord, not to buy into the idea that we cannot know truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Jesus said, thy word is truth. O oh Lord, may we not hide behind our own laziness, our own indifference, that we are tolerant of so many different ideas and simply say to ourselves, well, how can I know? And just not worry about what is true and what is not. May we see the danger. May, see, may we see what it's doing to Christendom. May we see how false worship develops and grows and flourishes even by those that are born again, but yet not real adherents of the truth of the word of God. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.